Well, good morning, church. Good morning. I hope you have had a good week. Some of you have gone through trials. Some of you have gone through celebrations. And what unites us is the body of Christ as we come here together to worship God, laying aside whatever it is we've dealt with this week, knowing that God gives us the strength to make it to the next day and the next moment, and to be able to share with others the good and the bad so that we can give Him the glory. Period. Amen? Well, last week we opened up God's Word to discover that God is a holy and awesome God. And He is set apart from His creation that is us. And we must be careful not to use His name lightly, not to toss it around maybe in how we text or talk or email or post things, to use His name in vain. But we must worship him as a holy God. And if we also then saw, because he is so holy, he is so awesome, that puts us at the different, or I should say the other end of the spectrum, so to say. We see that God's creation, which is us, has fallen. And we are flawed. And there's an incredible separation between a holy God and his creation. There's a gap there. And we long for a relationship with God. God desires for a relationship with us. But there's that chasm there. That sinfulness that separates us from a holy God. So how do we approach God? How do we come to this holy God? You know, how do we even spend eternity in the presence of God? Let me ask you in a question like this. If God's in heaven... How do we get to heaven? How do we get to his presence? If he is so holy and we are not, have you ever thought about that? There's a story about a teacher who was asking a Sunday school class that very question. Kids, how do we get to heaven? How do we get to heaven? And he started posing these questions to them. He said, how about, how about if I sell everything I have and give that to the needy? Will that get me to heaven? And all the kids in you said, no. How about... If I um, help the poor and, and maybe I go on a mission trip, will that get me into heaven? And all the kids are like, no. Well, how about if I have a clean house and I, and I do all my chores and I look really nice? Will that get me into heaven? And the kids are just building now. No, they shout in unison. And they said, well, then how do we get to heaven? The little boy outside looking at his teacher like the teacher doesn't know anything. Like, you got to die first to get to heaven. Well, true, right? Of course, the teacher was aiming for something different in his answer. But even then, after death, how do we know on this side of eternity that we're going to heaven? How do, how do you know for sure? Truth is, we really don't talk about this unless there's a funeral. Or something tragic happens. You're at the deathbed of a loved one. Or maybe you're preparing for a sermon. Or an evangelical message. Or you're at an event. That's about the only time you really sit there and really think about it and say, hey, I wonder how I really get to heaven. How do I get into the presence of God? It seems like we're so preoccupied with this life, making a life, making a living. We don't think much about that end question. So what happens next? 
When's the last time you had a, heard a sermon on hell? Have you ever? Somebody asked me that uh, question. Rex, have you ever preached on it? I thought, I've preached on heaven. You know what? In length? Probably not. Have I talked about hell before? Yes. So be looking this summer when it's hot. We'll talk about what's hot. It's coming. Trust me. But where are you going? I mean, let, the truth is, when you die, your soul, you're going to heaven or hell. There's only two places. Which one are you going to? Do you know where? Maybe you should ask this question. Are you 100% for sure? I've heard people say that before. They're like, well, I, I hope, I think. You hope, you think? As a Christian, you should be 100% sure. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, you know where your eternity is going to be spent. Because this world is, is full of theories, simple beliefs, opinions. Is what you believe 100% correct? Are you going to heaven for sure? 100%? Beyond a shadow of a doubt? I hope you can say yes. Some religions believe good people come back to earth as better people. Survey revealed that 90% of Americans believe that there is a heaven and, and only 30% believe that there is a hell. What do those other 70% believe? Everybody goes to heaven? So when you apply, uh, for instance, to volunteer with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, you have to fill what we call uh, out a ministry leadership application. All your basic information about you. Um, here's our statement of beliefs. Are you in agreement with that? Uh, tell us a little bit more about your family. Give us some references. And then we give four questions you have to answer. One of those questions, it's, it's sort of like this. I'll loosely rephrase the question. But is if you died and you ended up at the gates of heaven and Jesus is there and Jesus looked at you and said, why should I let you into heaven with me? How would you reply? What's your answer? Now, believe it or not, there's times people filled out those ministry leadership applications and I thought they were Christians, but when they filled that question out, they were in doubt. They didn't know for sure. It's a very interesting question. And before you answer that question, I want you to remember last week's sermon. And if you weren't here, let me basically say this again. God's a holy God. He is an awesome God. He is a just God. There is no sin in God. God cannot stand the sight of sin. And we are sinners. We're full of sin. We mess up. He knows it. He sees it. He looks at it. And he says, I'm a holy God. That is sin. I can't have that in my presence. So why should he let us in? You're at the gates of heaven. If that were to be, and you're at the gates of heaven, and you know your position, you know his position, why should he let you in? You know, most often religion, even non-religious people, will base their answer on this. It's what I did. It's good works. Righteous acts. Religious classes. I took communion. I was baptized. I served at the church. I parked cars. I was a greeter. I worked in the nursery. I've done good things. A lot of people believe being good gets you into heaven. So if good works is your answer, then you ask this, question, ask this next question. 
how good is good enough? If you think good works gets you into heaven, how good is good enough? Where's the line? Where do you and I currently stand? What's the standard? Where's the finish line? Does anybody know where that is? And where are you at in accordance with that? Who sets the standard? Who oversees and decides this is good enough? If God is, then don't you think he would be a little bit clear in his word as to giving us a description as to where the finish line is? As to how many works you need to do? As to how good is good enough? Is there a graph or a chart on our progress? Like, hey, you're getting close. Good job. Ten more good works and you're in. You ever thought about that before? I'm not going to ask how many of you have a 401 or some kind of retirement plan. But for most of you, if you do have something like that, then probably you've had a report, a statement of some sort that's come to you and has told you, here's your progress. If you were to retire today, this is how much money you would get. Thing is, you might be retiring 10, 20 years from now. So in order to retire with enough money to support your lifestyle, you need to be contributing this much right now. Oh, so I need to contribute a little bit more now so that when I retire, I have enough to help me out. We've got a graph and a standard for that, right, for retirement. How about eternal retirement? Where's your graph at? How good do you have to be? You know, I was in Atlanta this past week for some director's meetings and uh, got to the Detroit airport. And I want you to think this through with me. I get to the Detroit airport. I got my suitcase, got my carry-on. I go up to check in my luggage. Now, what if I just walked up and just handed it to them? They said, where are you going? I said, uh, Atlanta. Just, but don't, don't tag it. Just throw it back there and let's see where it goes. That could be fun. And some of you are like, they do that anyway, right? Yeah. And then I don't even ask what concourse I'm flying out. I don't ask them what gate I would need to be at to check in. I just walk through the security, walk around. I'm thinking, let's see, where's the closest coffee shop? Oh, right here. Okay. And let's see. Well, there's a bunch of gates here. And that's, but those aren't very clean. Oh, there's another coffee shop. And wow, that, that's a very clean setup outside that gate. And ooh, I like that. That plane's really shiny. I like that plane. I like that plane better than the other plane over there because this one looks a little bit bigger, so there's probably a little bit more space on the inside. And then I just walk up to the person who's taking tickets and say, I want to get on that plane. I just have my ticket. I just walk right by and get on that plane. That sounds sort of silly, right? I discovered this flying out of Atlanta. There are planes taking off like every 30 seconds, if not sooner. Hundreds of planes are leaving every minute, it seems like. It would seem silly for me just to walk and just pick whatever plane I want to pick because it's shiny or looks really nice or this is really clean. And I hope it gets me to my destination. But isn't that what we do with life sometimes? We pick a good life that's really clean and we hope that we end up in a good destination heaven. Being good and hoping so isn't going to bridge the gap between a holy God and sinful man. Being good doesn't cut it. Open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 64. Isaiah chapter 64. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll bring one to you. 
Isaiah chapter 64. Been reading through the book of Isaiah now for quite a while. And it's amazing how God lines things up with maybe a message I'm preaching and what I'm reading daily. And, and then when I came across this passage a few weeks ago, boy, it hit, it hit, it hit me hard. Isaiah chapter 64. We're going to start in verse 4. For since the world began, no ear has heard, no eye has seen a God like you. Pause for a second. Our God is unlike any other false God. Lincoln Brewster sings a song, There is no one like our God. Sometimes just crank that song up and just shout amen. There is no one like our God. The scriptures proclaim it, we sing it. Let's read on. No eye has seen a God like you, who works for those who wait for him. You welcome those who gladly do good, who follow godly ways. But you've been very angry with us, for we are not godly. Isaiah Isaiah proclaims that God sees we're good, but we're not godly. Big difference. He goes on to say this, we are constant sinners, How can people like us be saved? We're all infected in impure sin. And when we display our righteous deeds, they're nothing but filthy rags. Do you see how God is describing us? Constant sinners, infected, impure, filthy rags. Isaiah is saying, how can people like us, people like us think that we're good enough to be in God's presence? Impure, infected. Read on. Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall. Our sins sweep us away like the wind. I love how Isaiah sees the results of sin and compares them to the leaves in the fall. We love the fall. It's like, oh, the change in the leaves, they're so beautiful, they're so awesome. But they're also dying. Sin decays and destroys us. And we go from a vibrant green life to a decaying brown death. Fall leaves are are colorful at first, right? But in reality, they're dying and dropping. And Isaiah sort of uses that picture to say, we're like that leaf in the autumn season. Born, vibrant, and green to be in a relationship with God. But look at us, we're decaying. We're dying. And to top it off, he says, we aren't even seeking help. Look at verse 7. Yet no one calls on your name or pleads with you for mercy. It's like, here's the answer. It's God, but nobody's calling. Therefore, you've turned away from us and you've turned us over to our sins. See, despite our lack of seeking God and being selfish, Isaiah declares in verse 8, And yet, O Lord, you are our Father. I love this verse. We are the clay. You're the potter. We're all formed by your hand. Sometimes we get confused. We think we're the potter. That we're the ones that create and do things. That we're in charge. We're in control. It's very humbling, but we have to remember we're the clay. He's the potter. He is forming us. We're in his hands. We can't come to God demanding that he accepts us based on our good conduct. We're just the clay. For the clay to shout out to the potter, I'm good enough. You need to accept me for who I am is silly. But that's sort of what we've been raised to believe. 
just because of the way our culture rolls. We point out our good deeds, but God says they're nothing but filthy rags. He is a holy God, and he looks at our sin and says, I can't have that. And at this point in time, we think, but that's not fair. That's not fair. How many of you often thought life just isn't fair, right? After all, it's fair that good people deserve good things, and I think it's fair that bad people get bad things. That sounds like being fair to me. Is that fair to you? If you do something good, you should get something good in return, right? You do something bad, you probably deserve something bad. That seems fair. If you try out for a team and you do really good, you're going to make that team. Good job. If you study for the test and you do well on the test, you get a passing grade. You get to go to the next grade in school. Good job. If you do well at work, you get the raise. Maybe you even get a promotion. Makes sense, right? In life, we get rewarded for our efforts. When we do good things, we often get a good return. And we've discovered in life, if we mess up and make a mistake, oh, but sometimes we get what we deserve as there as well. So it makes sense that we take what we've learned in life and translate that to our spiritual life. Well, God, I've been doing good things, so I deserve eternity in heaven, right? We're swayed into believing that good people deserve heaven. And let's consider the fact this. God is good. Amen? So if God is good and God is in heaven... Don't you think he wants to fill heaven with good people? I think a good God doesn't want bad people in heaven. So it only makes sense that bad people don't go to heaven. Only good people do. But who defines good? Actually, somebody just sent me an email recently within the last day that almost hits up on this thought. Because there's so many religions and each have an opinion of what is good. There's some really crazy beliefs out there. And they think that if I go blow something up and blow somebody up, my God is happy with that. Really? That doesn't sound like a good religion to me. But that's how their religion defines goodness, through death of others. Consider the situation. It's the first day of school. Your teacher informs you this. Your class grade is going to be based entirely upon how well you do on the final exam. Everybody okay with that? Your grade is going to be based on your final exam. But then your teacher says, okay, class dismissed. See you at the end of the semester. Okay, now if you're like me, your first thought is yes, but then your next thought is wait. Isn't there a syllabus? You got a suggested reading list of books? What am I studying for? I, what's going to be on the test? How do I prepare for this? You, start, you, you, know, you put your hand up through there and you start asking all these questions and the teacher says, oh, none of that's necessary. Don't worry about it. Just be ready for the final. And that teacher leaves. Now, is that a good teacher? Is that the kind of class you want to be in? Wouldn't you want the teacher to tell you what's going to be on that test to help define that class? In the same way, don't you think God wants to help us define what's going on in this life so we know? There are some who say that good is not determined by someone else, but by what's within. It's your conscience, right? Like a little Jiminy Cricket, remember? That little voice. 
whispers into your ear. It's your, it's your conscience. This is what's right. This is what's wrong. We all have that internal sense of what is right and what is wrong. But we need to take into consideration that good and bad may change over time. Now, what do I mean by all that? What you believe right now is good, as you mature, you might believe five years from now that that is actually bad. So is good and bad change according to your age? Does good and bad change from when you were a kid to when you're single and happy living freedom, right? To when you're married and have kids to when you're older? Does your morals change? Does what your conscience say change? Some of you say, I don't think so. But let me ask you this. As a child, how many times were you told, those are bad words, don't use those words? But as an adult, you can use them. Since when did what was wrong as a child become right as an adult? Joel Penn, you might remember him. He came and spoke at our, our church a few years ago. When he does school assemblies, he will bring up probably about 15, 20 high schoolers or kids from the from the school assembly, they come up on stage and he asks them a series of questions. And then he says, I'd like you to go stage right to stage left. And he has like a screen on both sides. And he says, go whichever direction best fits you. Here's the first question. Michigan is the best school around. And it's just a simple question, right? An opinion thing. If you agree with that, go over here. If you disagree, go over there. And the kids move to whatever side they, right? Okay, next question. Then he starts asking a little bit, Tougher questions. If, is it wrong, I'm sorry, it is wrong to cheat on a test, agree or disagree. They move from side to side. And then he gets another question. He keeps doing this for a while, but my favorite is the last two questions. Is it okay, I'm sorry, I keep asking the question. It is okay to spend the night at your boyfriend or your girlfriend's house overnight Agree or disagree? All the high school kids, I'm telling you right now, 95% of them at least go to, oh, I agree. It's okay to spend the night at my boyfriend and my girlfriend's house. It's all good. Okay? Next question. If you had a daughter, it is okay for her to spend the night at her boyfriend's house. Agree or disagree? Oh, no way. Now I'll go to the disagree. There's no way my daughter would spend the night at the boyfriend. Did you see what just happened? See, it's okay for them to spend the night at their boyfriend or the girlfriend's house, but if they had a daughter, there's no way that's happening. Does that sound like a conflict of morals there? Well, your consciousness? So maybe we can't decide whether good is based on our conscience, because it seems like our conscience can't even decide. Maybe God's word is how we decide what is good enough, right? How about the Ten Commandments? The Old Testament was given primarily to provide a a social framework as well as a civil framework for the nation of Israel. Just as we got to figure out how to govern our society, they need to figure out how to govern theirs. So Israel needed some laws to live by. These laws govern a group of people, the Ten Commandments. But nowhere did Moses tell them, follow the Ten Commandments and these will get you into heaven. I don't remember reading that anywhere. The New Testament basically declares that the Old Testament implies that no one will reach God by doing these things. Matter of fact, if you're looking to Romans 3.20, Romans 3.20 says, For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows how sinful we are. Oh boy. 
So, so far, I'm having a hard time defining what is good. How about this? Because everybody does this. What if we compare our goodness to the goodness of others? That's called grading on the curve. I don't know if you've ever done that before. It seems like somebody always sets the... If you know what grading on the curve is, basically you're in school and everybody takes a test. Nobody got an A. So the teacher looks at the highest grade score, which was probably a C, and says that's going to be our A, and grades on the curve, and everybody else gets their grade based off of that person. That's grading on the curve. Have we ever done that with our lives morally? What I mean by that is this. Well, you know what? I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I mean, I know I'm not perfect. I know I'm not the greatest, but look at them. We grade on the curve, Right? And you know what we do really good at? We, we do really good at finding people who are really messed up. <laughs> and we look at them and go, oh, at least I'm not as bad as that. Right? Oh, until somebody points out the Reverend Billy Graham or maybe Mother Teresa, and then we're like, oh, <laughs> I got some things to work on. Right? Look in your Bibles. I hope you're still there in Isaiah. Go to chapter 65, next chapter over. Isaiah chapter 65 Verses 1 to 5. God says he's ready to be found, right? He, he wants to forgive others, but they just won't reply. It says, the Lord says this, I was ready to respond, but no one asked for help. I was ready to be found, but no one was looking for me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that did not call on my name. All day long, I opened up my arms to rebellious people, but they follow their own evil paths. And their own crooked schemes. All day long they insult me to my face by worshiping idols in their sacred gardens. They burn incense on pagan altars. At night they go out among the graves worshiping the dead. They eat the flesh of pigs and make stews with other forbidden foods. Yet they say to each other, hey, don't come too close, you'll defy me. I am holier than thou. Sounds like they're grading on the curve, doesn't it? But God doesn't grade on the curve. God has a different standard when he looks at us. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Let's go to the New Testament. Romans chapter 3. Get past the first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospels, Acts, and then Romans. Romans chapter 3. See, just as we've been reading from the Old Testament, Paul tells us the same thing in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 3, we'll start in verse 10. It says this, as the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder, destruction, and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. Did you hear that's what the law does? When we look to try to figure out how good am I, we look at God's word, guess what we find out? We're not good. Verse 20, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Let me sum this up where we're at so far, okay, before we move into the final stage here of our sermon. A couple things. First of all, we don't know exactly what good is. 
Religions can't even agree on what good is. Religious leaders can't agree on what good is. Our internal moral thoughts are not a good standard for using, defining what good is. We have no uh, clear indication from God like a scoring system on how good is good enough. No chart to chart it out. And the Bible doesn't claim to offer a way to heaven through good works. But Paul gives a solution. Because I want to go back to that first question. How do you know you're going to heaven, right? Are you 100% sure? So we know this. Good works ain't happening. So let's look what Paul says. He gives us a solution. Look at verse 21, Romans chapter 3. We're still there. Verse 21. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him. Here we go. We got the answer. How do we, you know, we get to those gates of heaven. There's Jesus. And he goes, I'm giving you the answer. I'll tell you what. Check it out in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Keep reading there. Know it so when you get to heaven, you're going to understand this, right? It's almost like an open book test. Here we go. God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. Verse 22. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. This is true for everyone who believes, no matter who you are. No matter who. Do you love that? This is for everybody. Look at verse 23. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are, look, here it comes again, made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair. Let me hear you say fair. Fair. When he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past, for he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in the present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just. Let me hear you say fair. And he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Can we boast then? That we've done anything to be accepted by God? Can we go to, hey God, look at my good works. Look what I did. Can we boast about that? What does Paul say? No. Because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It's based on faith. Look at verse 28. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. Paul makes it clear that we have a fair God providing a way into his eternal presence. And not by works. Not by obeying any laws, but through faith in Jesus Christ. What Paul teaches is what Jesus was saying. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way. And for thousands of years, the Jews have been sacrificing animals to God to overlook their sins. You make a mistake, you mess up, sacrifice an animal. The Old Testament was clear that sin required death. And God allowed the prescribed death of an animal to cover or temporarily substitute the death of the sinner. But the death of that lamb did not permanently erase the guilt associated with sin. Someone messed up, someone has to pay for it. Oh, we understand that, don't we? You broke it, you pay it. Right? We've heard that before. You ordered it. You got to pay for it. God's saying, you messed up. Somebody has to pay.
pay for that sin. And the law, our moral conscience, our grading of goodness makes us painfully aware that we are are messed up in need of a Savior. Each of us is guilty of offending a holy God. The Bible calls those offenses sin. Our offenses require a payback. That leaves us in a dilemma. How do you pay the price? How do you pay the price? This is where we get to what is called we don't deserve salvation. This is called grace. God giving us something we don't deserve. We don't. He sends Jesus Christ as that ultimate sacrificial lamb to pay for an offense we can't afford. It's our faith in the holy God and in his son Jesus Christ. That's where we find salvation. Not good works, but by faith. Romans 8.3 says this. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Here's the thing. God really is a fair God. I don't know, sometimes we might argue that. I don't think he's fair. God's a really fair God. Matter of fact, God goes beyond fair. You know what, if God is, you're like, I want God to be fair. Okay, be careful. You know what being fair is on God's side? We deserve death for our sins. A fair God would put you in hell. Wouldn't he? You want what's coming to you, you want what's fair? But see, God is full of mercy. He gives us what we don't deserve. We don't deserve the opportunity to be in God's presence in heaven. So you want God to be fair? That would be eternity in hell, separated from his presence. But he doesn't give us what we deserve. God's grace and mercy, his love is generous to all who receive it. Isn't that good news? Yeah, I know you come in here on a sort of a cloudy day and it seems like I've been hammering you with, sorry, your good works aren't working for you, okay? But the good news is, even though we don't deserve any of this, God loves us enough and gives us what we don't deserve and he doesn't give us what we do deserve. That's grace and mercy. Much of what I shared with you this morning is what God laid on my heart and I was reading and then I stumbled across a little book by Andy Stanley called How Good is Good Enough. And I was reading through it. Oh, that's good, that's good. And so I pulled a few of his quotes out as I was writing this. And I thought, you know what? I want to share some of that. I want to share what God's laid on my heart. I want to share what I found in God's word. And I want to give you this truth. Because God is holy and we're not. And I feel like sometimes we just live our lives grading on the curve. That we can do it on our own. We can't. We've got to get it right. We've got to make sure that as we leave this place this morning, you can walk out of here saying, 100%, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, I am saved by the grace of God. Not by my good works, but by his sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. And I place my faith in his son. Have you confessed that? David, you come forward, please. 
I'm going to ask you to pray with, this, with me this morning. And I want you to listen very carefully. Saying a prayer doesn't make you a Christian. It's placing your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior that makes you a Christian. Your prayer is a confession of your mouth. Prayer is how we express to God what's going on in our hearts. It's an agreement that we're sinners and we need to be saved. So when we pray, we pray what we're doing in, in our heart and placing our faith in Him. And then it's exercised and lived out by how we go and respond to God's grace and mercy. Are you 100% sure on this one? Would you please stand? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're an awesome God. God, I just pray right now that as we are here this morning, I hope and pray, Lord, that everyone in this room is 100% sure they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that when they die, when they stand at the gates, and if they had to answer this question, am I good enough to get in here? No, we're not. But by your grace, giving me what I don't deserve, by your mercy, not giving me what I do deserve, I recognize I am a sinner. I've messed up, separated from you. But by your grace, your gift to me, your son, your sacrificial lamb, you've saved me. You've saved me. And I accept that gift. I admit I'm a sinner. Forgive me, God. Forgive me. Help me to live for you. Give me your spirit so that every day I can wake up and walk in victory, not being defeated by fear or doubt or the circumstances that surround me every day. But God, give me the strength and the peace and the hope and the courage to walk out of my house every day saying, God, you are alive and I am saved. I am your child and I will live victorious for you today. God, that's what we want. So God, forgive us right here, right now where we stand. Heavenly Father, thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for giving us hope and new life. In that precious name we pray. Amen. As you're standing here, I want to take you back a few thousand years ago to the night when Jesus was arrested. Before he was arrested, he was in his room, the upper room with his disciples, and they broke bread together and they took communion together. They celebrated the Passover. And this morning we're going to take communion. And it's not a magical thing, as we said, this doesn't make you a Christian. It's because you are a Christian that you take what you're doing symbolizes what Jesus talked about, the, the broken body on the cross, the shed blood on the cross. That was his sacrifice to you. So when we take the bread, we take the drink, we're remembering what he did in that sacrifice. And we take it knowing that, that it's a continued statement that every time we do this, we do this in the name of Jesus and it reminds us of our identity. And we think back to this, our past is forgiven because of the body broken and the blood that was shed. Our present is empowered by the Holy Spirit now to, to share with this church family what is going on as co-heirs with Jesus. And our future in Christ, we have an inheritance that can never perish, can't be spoiled, can't be taken away. So when we take the Lord's Supper this morning, remember you're forgiven. You're empowered 
empowered by God's Spirit now. And that He's coming again someday and we are co-heirs with an inheritance that cannot be taken away from us. We have promise. We have promise. God's Word says that on the night He was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and gave thanks to God for it. He broke it into pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again and he's coming again. Amen? What we're going to do is, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to pray, and after I'm done praying, I'm going to ask you to go to one of the tables in the front, in the back, at each corner of this room by yourself, with a family, however you want to do this, as a Christian, grab that piece of bread. Take a cup. If you want to pray again, you can. Take the bread and eat it. Take the cup and drink it. And then go ahead and go back to your seat. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ. As we take this bread, we take this cup of juice, We remember what you did for us. We will never forget the sacrifice, the pain that you took so we didn't have to. Thank you, God, for doing that. Thank you for sending your son. We thank your son, Jesus Christ, for the sacrifice, for forgiving us, for giving us hope that you're coming back. So we will do this until you come back. We do this in remembrance of you. In thy name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and go to one of the tables. Father, as we, as we get ready to leave this place, we want to leave with joy, knowing that you've saved us. 
it seems like such a somber time. What an incredible thing you did for us. We celebrate that. God, you're so good. We love you, Lord. We want to sing to you now in the name of prayer. Amen.